Hello, I'm Peter Goodwin, and welcome to this continuation of our special series of audio news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Audio News Review. In today's programme, a growth hormone that's reduced cardiovascular risk factors among patients with HIV. A new treatment for HIV that doubled antiviral response rates among patients who've shown resistance to other drugs and the hope of an HIV vaccine. But we begin with reducing mortality and the need for blood transfusion after trauma. An antifibrinolytic drug commonly used to slow blood loss during surgery could be used as first aid at the scene of an accident. That's according to investigators from London and Lima, working with an international team based around the developing world. The so-called CRASH trial aims to see whether tranexamic acid can play a role in reducing bleeding and therefore death and the need for blood transfusions after trauma or major injury. This is to answer a vast unmet need in areas of the world where patients commonly exsanguinate and die long before they can reach hospitals or specialised referral centres. I visited Jaime Miranda in Lima, Peru, who told me what they were trying to achieve in this ongoing investigation. For this large number of patients that suffer many injuries or trauma, bleeding is an important cause of death. And what we're going to do is going to test if a drug, an antifibrinolytic, specifically tranexamic acid, has a role or not in reducing bleeding in terms of number of uh, blood transfusion units required and in terms of mortality. Now this drug, tranexamic acid, already has a role, so it's an old drug? Yes, tranexamic acid is as a generic on the market, so if the results of the trials show any uh, positive or negative finding, the drug will be widely available for the patients. This drug has indications for reducing bleeding in patients with elective surgeries. That is cardiac surgeries, that is uh, prostatectomies, that is hysterectomies, amongst other indications. And also it has indications in patients with genetic disorders such as hemophiliacs. Is this a, a particularly simple drug to use though? Yeah, it's very simple. You only need a loading dose and a maintaining dose and with that intervention we are expecting to have an impact and in terms of safety 95% of the drug or over 90% of the drug is excreted by the urine after 24 hours so long-term safety yes we should say it's a safety drug and it's been on the market for 40 years. Now you've got some interim findings already although this is a huge trial it's got a long way to go but you've also got some anecdotal evidence from Israel can you tell me what what's been happening there? Yeah, part of the basis of launching this trial is that Israeli army forces, they use this drug as part of their management of bleeding in their army. So there's one anecdotal part there for the role of this drug in trauma patients, which is not an indication already. But also, using this drug, you should be careful, as in any trial, with the safety of this medicine. And we're looking at 20,000 patients and obviously one of the things that we're looking at is not to have an increased number of adverse events. And so far, and in correlation with the literature, we've analyzed 4,000 patients who are already taking part of the study and the number of adverse events are are below 0.5%. So you've already shown that tranexamic acid is safe to use. 
Um, can you tell me what is the hypothesis, though? You've got a road traffic accident or other trauma injury. How would you use this agent and what might be the advantages? For any patient with trauma, what happens is that we will give them a loading dose as soon within the eight hours of the trauma, especially if they arrive at a hospital center. And then we will continue the treatment for eight hours with an infusion of a similar dose. So it's only those two points of management that we're going to do, giving at that arrival at the hospital and then an eight hour maintenance of the dose. And that should, for us, that should have an effect and an impact in reducing blood transfusions needs and also in mortality. So the need for blood transfusion and the absence of suitable blood transfusion is a big cause of problems worldwide at the moment? Yes, and particularly in certain contexts as well. I mean, blood banks is our massive, massive problem, even in bigger and larger cities. And also in contexts, say, Africa or Asia, where particularly Africa, where HIV is a big problem, blood transfusion is, is something that physicians look with concern, and this drug should help us to lower those concerns. In terms of the amount of lives saved internationally, could you put a figure on it? Because trauma isn't researched all that much, is it? Yes, trauma is a very neglected area of research. So just to give you an idea, trauma in the population of 15 to 45 years old, mainly other population in the world, trauma is the second cause of mortality only after HIV AIDS. So that is to give you an idea of the impact that this drug will have in patients with injuries. Now, an antifibrinolytic, which is what this drug is, is intended to um, maintain the body's ability to stem the flow of blood in times of trauma and how much difference do you think that might make to whether people live or die? That's what we're doing the study. We don't know yet if the drug will have an impact or no. Going back to the physiology, the formation of blood clots is a constant process and uh, you have blood clotting formation factors but also clot destruction factors going on. And what this drug does, it only favors one of these mechanisms, the formation of clot blood fractures. It doesn't form clots as such. It only um, helps maintain the clotting in these uh, mechanisms of coagulation. And we are post-hypothesizing that this work in the coagulation cascade will have an impact in reduced blood um, loss. Bearing in mind that there are many places in the world where there is a huge need for improving the treatment of trauma, do you have a message for doctors at the moment? Yes, for the management of trauma, we, we should be open for new innovations, for new, for new ideas. Uh, this sort of example, the crash trial, which, which is a pragmatic, simple, low-cost trial will give us an, an enormous impact in, in our management of patients with trauma. So basically, let's not close down our doors to new alternatives for the management of our patients. Jaime Miranda from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who I met up with at his base in Lima, Peru. Next, over to Los Angeles, where our correspondent Dan Keller has been hearing how growth hormones can help reduce cardiovascular risks for patients with HIV. An analogue of growth hormone releasing factor has helped to reverse the abnormal fat distribution that often accompanies antiretroviral therapy in many patients with HIV infection. 
at the 14th Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections here in Los Angeles, Stephen Grinspoon reported 26-week data from his study using TH9507, a GHRF analog. The aim of the study was to reduce visceral adiposity, a known risk factor for cardiovascular disease, among these patients on highly active antiretroviral therapy. After his talk, I asked him about the study design and results. We administered 2 milligrams sub-Q a day of this hormone, TH9507, which is growth hormone releasing factor 1 to 44, or placebo, 2 to 1 randomization, active versus placebo, over six months. And what did you find? We found a 15% reduction in visceral fat, the primary endpoint in the TH9507, versus a 5% increase in the placebo for a net effect of about a 20% reduction compared to placebo over six months. And was there an effect of CD4 counts? That's a good question. There was no effect on immune parameters, CD4 or viral load in the study. And there was no effect of the CD4 counts in themselves on the findings? Yeah, we, we have not looked in a model to see whether uh, baseline CD4 affected result, but the question of whether we made, it wor made immune function worse or better, we did not. It was neutral with respect to immune function. At this point, do you see any clinical implications to this uh, finding? We do. I, you know, it's difficult to find a strategy that's safe and effective to reduce visceral fat. And this particular product is not yet available, but it's now gone through one phase three study and is in, is in the beginning of its confirmatory phase three study. So if the confirmatory study is positive, uh, there, may, there may be some motion to have this approved by the FDA as a new drug. And body morphology is of concern to many people, including uh, the patients you looked at. Did you question them as to uh, their opinions? We did. We did ask them um, their opinion about their changes, and we don't have those data back yet. For They're currently being analyzed. The changes that you did see, would they be noticeable to a person? Well, it amounts to a th three-centimeter decrease in waist circumference, which I think would be noticeable. It's important, to, as you're doing, a focus on these metabolic abnormalities as increased CBD risk factors in this population, because I think they're important. So besides the actual changes in body fat, what kind of uh, things did you see in terms of those parameters? Yeah, we saw improvement in lipids across the board. So we saw improvements in triglyceride, improvements in um, total cholesterol to HDL ratio, improvements in HDL, and improvements in cholesterol across the board. Did you look at people on various drug regimens, and is this generalizable to people on all sorts of anti-HIV drugs? Patients were very much like... Uh, all, you know, like the majority of patients on these drugs, um, primarily they were on a nuke and, and other and the protease inhibitors as well. Um, they were representative in that regard, and there was no hint that specific antiretrovirals affected the results. Stephen Grinspoon of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. I also spoke with one of his co-investigators, Judith Currier, who chaired a news conference on metabolic and cardiovascular complications of antiretroviral therapy for her perspective on where future treatment with growth hormone releasing factor analog may be most appropriate. We need to see the long-term safety and we need to see what happens after people stop the medication before we can really determine where this is going to be potentially usable. The studies continued, there'll be a chance to see you know, if this is a transient effect, if it's maintained over time. Is it feasible really as a widespread long-term therapy? And I think we have to understand why people get increased visceral fat with treatment and it, it, part of it is 
with advanced HIV disease, they have an improvement in their health and their some you know gain of weight, and it's deposited there. We're basically using a drug to treat what may be a side effect of other drugs, and it would be better if we could do things like get people to exercise and change their diet. But um, you know, over the long term, I would say no, it's not something you'd want to commit people to. But maybe a combination of approaches for a short period of time, you could get some beneficial effects and then not need to continue it. So I wouldn't think that long-term injectable therapy to reduce visceral fat is going to be something that people are going to want to do. But being able to see you know, some impact is it's, it's good. And it may have implications beyond HIV, certainly. That was Judith Courier of the University of California, Los Angeles, speaking with Dan Keller at the Congress on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in Los Angeles. Also from the same conference, Dan heard about a new HIV treatment for patients who've shown resistance to previous therapy. Dan. Two large randomized placebo-controlled trials have demonstrated the efficacy and safety of raltegravir in the treatment of HIV-infected patients whose virus was resistant to at least one antiretroviral drug in each of the nucleoside, non-nucleoside, and protease inhibitor classes. Patients received either raltegravir or placebo, each on top of optimized background therapy. Raltegravir is an integrase inhibitor and is the first drug in this class to reach phase 3 clinical trials. Integrase is the third enzyme required for replication of HIV in addition to reverse transcriptase and protease. It allows viral nucleic acid to integrate into the DNA of host cells. Drugs against the other two enzymes are the backbone of current anti-HIV therapy. The two trials, called Benchmark 1 and Benchmark 2, included almost 700 patients. At the 14th Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections here in Los Angeles, Roy Steigbeagle described to me first the viral load results in Benchmark 1. At 16 weeks, the uh, individuals who had the uh, Reltigravir, 77% reached the endpoint of less than 400 copies and 43% in the placebo group. Analogous results were seen in what's called Benchmark 1, which is a similar study done in other parts of the world other than North and South America. The integrase inhibitor showed uh, the same type of proportional increased activity versus placebo, uh, whether the patients had more than or less than 100,000 viral-loaded baseline, less than 50 copies or more than 50 copies. The safety analysis showed no differences between the rotigravir group versus the placebo group for all the traditional types of analyses you know, in terms of physical examinations and laboratory uh, follow-up. What about in terms of uh, CD4 counts? The CD4 count increase uh, was more than twice as much in the Reltigravir group compared to the optimized background placebo group. Looking at the integrase inhibitors that are coming along, what do you see for this class? Where will they first be used? How will they be applied? The study that I'm involved in now is a phase three study, and the data for this, I presume, will be submitted to the FDA for permission to approval for people who have a class resistance. There are other studies ongoing, but not as far along for naive patients. What do you see as the clinical significance of these findings? 
it proves uh, that the in vitro data which showed this to be a very potent compound is truly effective in people and even in those who have a much resistant virus. There already has been a publication of a phase 1-2 study in naive patients showing its efficacy there, but this is a much tougher test and it, uh, it just looks very promising from these results. Do you see any advantages over previous classes of antiretroviral drugs? The most obvious advantage is that there is not going to be a, a background of uh, resistance to it. We know that uh, people who are naive to therapy are acquiring a resistant virus at very high rates. And depending on how detailed one analysis does, it's 15% or even higher of people receiving resistant virus. So this being a new class, that's one uh, interesting area for it. It also has a metabolism of glucuronidation in contrast to P450 enzyme so that the uh, drug interactions should be uh, theoretically uh, less of a problem as occurs with uh, PIs, for example. Is there any data so far on development of resistance? Resistance has been seen in this study. The prevalence of it, the rapidity with which it will occur, it's really too early to tell. Roy Steigbeagle of the State University of New York at Stony Brook in Stony Brook, New York. John Meller says although these results are relatively short-term, they are nonetheless quite impressive. The integrase inhibitor raltegravir added to optimized background therapy doubles the response rate in heavily treatment experienced people such that 80% of individuals getting raltegravir had responses of viral load to less than 400 copies versus around 40% in the placebo arm. The response rates in treatment experienced patients is approaching that of response rates in treatment naive individuals starting initial therapy, which is a major milestone. John Mellers of the University of Pittsburgh talking with Dan Keller at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in Los Angeles. Now Derek Thorne has news on an HIV vaccine. Developing a vaccine for HIV has been one of the toughest and most thankless areas in all of medicine. However, according to one of the leading scientists in the field, even a non-perfect vaccine could provide major benefits, both in terms of slowing disease progression and preventing the spread of the virus. One central problem with developing a classic vaccine for HIV is that there has never been a documented case of the human immune system successfully containing the virus. Thus, if we try to mimic natural infection, it's not likely to confer total protection. But Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda says even vaccines that don't prevent infection altogether could still have a role. And one particular mechanism is the induction of T-cell immunity. Dr Fauci told me about his co-authored paper in the New England Journal of Medicine and began by describing the vaccines being tested right now. The two major ones are based on the principle of inducing what we call T-cell immunity namely the kind of immunity that doesn't necessarily block infection, but that it blocks the progression of infection once infection does occur. And those two vaccines uh, make use of new technology. One vaccine, which is in the advanced stage, takes a common, relatively benign virus called an adenovirus, which is very common infection, usually quite benign, and reconstructs it molecularly to be able to insert the genes 
of certain of the HIV proteins into that adenovirus, sort of using the adenovirus as a vector, and then vaccinating individuals, and that induces this type of T-cell immunity. Another related vaccine also uses the adenovirus vector approach, but it is what we call a prime boost, namely you vaccinate someone with the pure DNA from HIV that actually codes for some of these proteins that you want to induce an immune response against. And then you boost the person with the vector adenovirus approach. And those studies started you know, a couple of years ago. The first one, which is sponsored by Merck Company in collaboration with the NIH, has just recently started the more advanced stage of the trial. The second trial is getting ready at the end of the year to go beyond the United States and to start in sites in sub-Saharan Africa. Let's talk about this idea of T-cell immunity in a bit more detail then, because it is interesting that that you believe that, um, you know, without a completely perfect vaccine, that you can still get some kind of benefit. Exactly how is it that we can get a benefit from a vaccine that is less than perfect? Well, the benefit is is really in, in two avenues. The first is for the person, him or herself, who's been vaccinated and yet still does unfortunately get infected. If you were not vaccinated with this vaccine that can blunt the progression of disease, you would have a typical course of HIV, which means you'd have inexorable destruction of your immune system. The level of virus would be very high in your body, and you would you would more easily be able to transmit that virus to another person if you had a sexual contact with them or if you shared a needle with them in injection drug use. With the new T-cell vaccine, although it doesn't have the perfect result of blocking infection, what it does do is that after you get infected, it blocks the progression of disease. So as an individual recipient of the vaccine, you could have a prolonged period of time where your body's immunity is actually containing the spread of the virus, which would uh, allow you to go for a considerable period of time without requiring therapy. The secondary benefit for other people is that if your own immune system is keeping that level of virus very low, then you decrease the likelihood that you would spread the infection to someone else, therefore having a secondary community effect as opposed to protecting you from advancing in your own disease. This second um, benefit does uh, introduce a concern, which I think you address, which is to do with you know the idea that if people have a vaccine and they may suddenly feel more protected and more confident about being more promiscuous, let's say. I mean, is that something that you'd have to be mindful of? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we're, we're concerned enough about that that a very important part of this type of vaccine approach is intensive education that this is not a standalone vaccine. This is a vaccine that must be used together with a comprehensive preventive approach. If we get vaccinated against polio or against measles or against uh, influenza or some of those other viruses, once you get vaccinated and the vaccine has a 90 to 95% plus uh, effectiveness, then you can really utilize the vaccine to be your only uh, modality of protection. You don't have to be necessarily doing anything else. If you get a vaccine for HIV with this non-classical paradigm, 
you cannot assume that you will be protected. You have to use the vaccine as an added element of protection combined with a comprehensive preventive approach that you would use together with the vaccine. That was Tony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda talking with our correspondent Derek Thorne. Tony is also the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases over there in the USA. And that's all from this edition of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Audio News Review. We'll be back with more soon. From me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.